and welcome to episode 156 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray feeling refreshed after an unexpected week off last week and raring to get into it today. That's partly because our guest on episode 156 is among the group I like to refer to as, quote, interesting thinkers, end quote, about the game. Kevin Moore's got a finger in many golf pies, from the Golf Blueprint and Squares to Circles programs aimed at helping golfers improve, to writing eloquently about the relationship we as golfers have with the game and its courses. Kevin will be along in just a moment, but first, to the studio and good, good lifer, Adrian Logue. You set this one up, Logue. I'm really looking forward to this. I am too. This has been a long time coming. Too I, long. I've I met uh, Kevin over in Atlanta. Sorry, Kevin. Uh, before COVID, and uh, I, I promised I, I took was up that the, the cool kids group that you went and hung out with. Was the guy with the doll thing? Yeah, it was the, the cool, cool kids, kids, cool kids yeah. thing. Yeah. No, yeah, we just yeah. we had a little game at uh, that reversible course, the Bobby Jones course at, in oh, Atlanta. Nice. Yeah, it was really interesting and pretty cool to me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well done to you, Logue. Also uh, on site, as Voshi just heard, more recent good, good detainee, though looking very much like a lifer if good behaviour is required to get out. Now freelance golf media consultant Jimmy Emanuel. Change of jobs. What's going on there? Uh, you know, Is that just a way of saying long-term unemployed? Unemployed. Fancy Correct. Way to say yeah, it. that's right. Unemployed. <laughs> Gun for hire, some might say. If you that's just a little change. I'm going to be still doing a lot of golf stuff and particularly around tournaments in this country. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of a change. I'll still be helping out with the great Brendan James and Golf Australia magazine when I can. But uh, yeah, just a little bit of a change and do something different. Well, Follow in your footsteps. Oh, <laughs> that's not life advice that you'd give no, anybody. I don't think it's no. certainly nobody smart would are take we, it. Are we announcing to listeners that you're a yeah, gun, I gun for an hire? Is this, yeah, that's is right. This, that's episode true. brought to you by Jimmy Emanuel. Wow. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's got to be invoiced. Uh, that's a, that's an invoice good. situation yeah, there. Exactly like. right. But yeah, that is an announcement to listeners, yeah. Okay. Good on you. I look forward to seeing how that unfolds and we get the good oil from all over the Australian golf landscape from you, Absolutely. I'm sure. Now to our guest today, who, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the game's most engaging thinkers. No matter your particular area of interest in golf, chances are... Kevin Moore has written something thoughtful about it. From think pieces as diverse as golf will never fail you and the notion that you can't have difficult without the opposite, to musings on not all constraints need to be limiting and testosterone and learning. Kevin Moore, welcome. What is all of this about? What's going on in your head? You know, my title is a professor, and I think that just means we profess, <laughs> right? That's that's our job, so I got I got to fill that hole somehow and... No, fortunately, with golf and just, you know, learning are the two things I'm passionate about. And we're fortunate enough to have an internet audience with things and just put stuff out there, right? It's a, it's a good exercise of thought to actually try to write, write things and put them in words, and that helps us flesh out our thinking. So that's why, that's why it's there. Golf and maths from the outside to be, or math, as I think you call it in the States, seem to be your two passions. Do they fit together? I would imagine in some ways they do, but... Golf to me always feels like art. So in sometimes it feels, some ways it feels like they don't. I reckon you're going to tell me I'm wrong, but I'm looking forward to hearing it. No, absolutely they do. I, I think in some ways they're compatible with each other, but in some ways, at least in my personal life, there's actually a huge tension between the two uh, as well. Because, I mean, as maybe the, the writings indicated, I also am a huge romantic when it comes to the game of the golf. Um, so in terms of the mass and its relationship to it, it can often pull that away. So even within my own life, that's been a tension where at times I've gravitated away from golf because of interjecting too much rationalism to it, too much mathematics to it, where it's kind of ripped away that just intrinsic joy to the game. Um, and other times I've found a way to really infuse and think about mathematics in a creative way within the game that brings me back to it. So there's, 
it's a delicate balance within my own life. Because I'm not a maths guy. I think you probably think more this way, Logue. You're probably a bit more mathematical about things. It always feels very um, definitive to me, maths. But in fact, people are into it. So it's a very creative pursuit, mathematics. I'll, I, I take Kevin's input. I, I, I think that, he's know, better at it than you, but I feel like I, you have a bit more of that kind of thinking than I do too. I, I know some mathematicians who certainly feel that way. I think it's a problem-solving uh, profession and and examining or finding meaning in things as well. Like maths is a, is a tool that you can use to find meaning in things and I think there is a certain amount of creativity in choosing what tools you pick up and what formulas and things you apply to learn about it. Some some observation is that is that ring true? Pass Kevin? or fail, Kevin? <laughs> for life. Yeah, let me uh, <laughs> let me kick the, the each of the three of you. Let me maybe give me three adjectives you think of when you think of maths. Like, what are the first three adjectives that jump into your mind? Hard, game here? boring, and soup. Numbers. We look all have like to come up with three. No, I'm pretty on board with that. Hard, boring, and <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. I didn't do maths when I finished high school. I was, yeah, I was. Rod just had a meeting with his accountant. Oh, so Jesus, like... he did my head in. <laughs> I, I've got a cousin, and at the end of it all, I'm broke. I've got a. I've <laughs> if got a... he's a bit hostile, Kevin, that's. Uh, I've got a cousin. I've got two. I've got two account emails sitting in my inbox right now. One <laughs> yeah, from UGA, them, and one them from outside. Yeah. And well, I know. I, I feel your pain <laughs> on the accountant. That's side. my new horror with my job now. Is that I got to do my own stuff too? It's it's not going to be good. But I've got a cousin who's got a doctorate in pure maths and his yeah. thesis he wrote the only part i understood was where he said thank you to mum and dad <laughs> <laughs> you after i got past that page hey, you, i was in all sorts you got a cousin you don't need to know about maths tell us kevin are we on the wrong track with maths i think maths got a pretty bad image doesn't it like golf yeah i think you know math can be thought of as a very esoteric topic and a very just distinct from humans or whatever boring whatever you want to call it drab um there's two aspects to that. So one, most of my research on the math side is in the world of psychology. So it's trying to address that exact exact issue and think of mathematics more as a creative aspect of just human nature, right? Just seeing mathematics in the world around us, how can we help any student going through a mathematical experience see that and think about, I don't know, math is empowerment almost, right? Like what can it do to help them reach their goals um, and look at themselves as mathematicians um, no matter what age they are. But then if we think about even the history of math and where it came from, most of the original mathematicians were philosophers. Right? If you think about math, mathematicians weren't, wasn't a career. And it came from either people in philosophy um, or in other fields such as the heavens, right? Trying to do astronomy and math merged as from needs of humans. Uh, so I think it's a little bit of a bastardization of what we've done to mathematics or maths in the teaching of it. And that's actually something my subgroup in terms of the, the field within mathematics that I work within, that's something we're constantly trying to address. That is literally our mission is to move mathematics from something boring and I can't do it. Um, if you think about it this way, like nobody would ever admit they're not, they're not good at reading, right? That's just not something you'd ever say. But tons of people admit, yeah, I hate math. I'm not good at it. Proudly, in fact. And so yeah. really- Proudly say, yeah. I'm not good at maths, don't they? Yeah, pre- yeah exactly. Embrace that. Yeah. Pass that on to their children, uh, that mindset. And so really working working hard to address that and just look at math as just like any other art. It is a creative venture that you can use to do awesome things. And I think if you talk to any mathematician, that's what they would tell you mathematics is. They wouldn't call it boring. They would call it a piece of art. You know, it's, it's problem solving. It's all those things we say, hey, as a critical citizenship, that's what we want people to have. So it's on our, it's on our shoulders to do that better because we, we frankly don't do a great job of it. I feel like I'm hearing my own 
points back to me about golf and its problems in the marketplace, this image that golf has, Kevin. You take out the word maths and exchange it for golf, you could almost make all of those same cases, couldn't you? Yeah, and we're probably, I mean, if we looked at golf and the evolution, especially in terms of recent history, that's maybe been expedited. We're kind of moving more and more with golf being boring, right? Just being... I don't, boring's maybe not the right word. One-dimensional, I think, khaki. probably, yeah. Yeah, one-dimensional would be a great way of putting it, right? It's just moving towards a khaki direction in terms of the skill sets emphasized. Obviously, we're kind of dabbling in the pro game with that commentary. The amateur level, our 12-16 handicap is tell, still our 12-16 handicap and still looks pretty similar than 20 years ago. But, yeah, the pro game, certainly. Um, I think you could substitute PGA golf with maths. Mm, indeed. Maths is everywhere in golf too, though, right? Oh, of course. Was, and that was I, I, something personally I found, like I said, I was, I was terrible at classroom maths as a kid. I, I just couldn't get it. Never had it, it, which was not like anyone in my family and still to this day. But when it came to sport, I could find interest in stuff I didn't realize was maths. Was maths and you were doing it. And when it came to then working in golf, it became an absolute fascination when trying to get better at golf the best run of golf i ever had was someone giving me a way to work in a really numbers based sort of focus um and then club fitting was what i did for the longest time and club fitting is kind of this mathematical equation of trying to maximize what the desired outcome is and applying that i've found myself fascinated and in digging into this stuff and not realizing even that it was using stuff i'd actually learned that it stuck in my brain that i'd never thought i was any good at and it's maths is so intertwined with golf and i think in that definition too sure but in the actual playing of the game and more so now than ever before with launch monitors and well, stuff technology like that has technology really has made maths, doesn't it if to be a good golf professional i'm talking a vocational golf professional teaching and and fitting people and stuff like that, you need to have a really good understanding of some numbers and equations that you don't learn at school. When I'm talking track mans and things, you know, spin lofts and all this sort of stuff and how that affects numbers and stuff is, um, it, it really is heavily intertwined. Mm. The, that maybe brings us to something, one area of Kevin's research. Kevin, I think you you do, you don't look so much at the ball being struck and more at what happens to the ball in the air and wh where it's going and how best to direct it and how hard to hit it for a certain type of hole, like looking at strategy, right? Um, mm -hmm. Anyone on Twitter is probably aware of accounts such as Lou Stagner, mm -hmm. where he's, he's always talking about dispersion patterns and uh, he claims angles don't matter. I, I think of you a little bit as the uh, shadow stagger. <laughs> or, or maybe, Bizarro? Maybe if Bizarro? He, like oh, Bizarro Superman? <laughs> the Bizarro if, world. If you were twins, he'd be the one wearing the goatee. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's um, but uh, you you take a similar approach with a business that you have called, or it's it's a, some sort of consultancy called Squares to Circles. And the diagrams superficially look the same, but there's a really important thing I noticed with your one in that clearly angles matter with what you do. Like you're, you've got this way of drawing these dispersion diagrams for golf shots where you start with where you want to be after the next shot and you pull back a line from that on the angle that you want to be hitting that next shot and then you're showing the dispersion to arrive at where you want to be placing your ball to be in the optimal position for that next shot. 
Am I getting that right? They're, and it's a very visual thing, so it's hard to explain. But uh, is, yeah, is that I the think, concept? Yeah, I think, you know, angles don't matter. Sure, that's an attractive, I think it's a big dogmatic. And it's an attractive dogma because at the fundamental level, if you're like, all right, Kevin, do you agree with that? Like, gun to your head. You, you have to say yes at some level in the sense of the idea of chasing angles. Okay, if you're trying to be a PGA professional golfer and perform at the highest level, chasing angles probably isn't going to get you very far, right? Like choosing like, well, if I hug the right side of the fairway, I'll have that angle, that back left pin, so I need to aim down the right side of the fairway. Certainly, as like your center point of your aiming, that's probably not going to work out very well for you, right? Like hitting hitting as far up as you can and maximizing the amount of balls that are going to end up in the fairway while balancing the distance that you can push up, certainly that's going to that's going to reward you from a strokes gain perspective more often than not than like trying to really get precise on what side of the fairway you're on. At the same time, that's primarily an outcome of the type of golf that's being played at the professional level. One, from the technology they're using and two, the courses that they're playing. Yeah, you got a 33 yard fairway out there with thickish rough on both sides. Certainly like Mm -hmm. favoring one side of the fairway and a green that's a typical width in their soft conditions. Yeah, like Hit it, try to maximize the amount you can get in the fairway as far down as you can. That's what you want to do. But we look at any time they go play Lynx golf or any time they're playing in the sand belt in Australia, things change a little bit there, right? There's an, to, to use Rod's um, one-dimensional comment, you get a second dimension with the ground game. Yeah. Like what the ball is going to do as soon as it hits the ground because guess what? When that ball's on the ground, if it's on the ground for 50 yards, now things do matter, right? The contours matter, the wind matters, the shape of your shot matters because the way it comes in, it's going to spin a little different, which is going to cause the bounce to be a little bit different. All the stuff matters. So yes, at a fundamental basis with where professional golf is mostly played right now and the technology they have, angles don't matter for lack of a better way to say it. But that's not the principles of golf and that's not how it has to be. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's, not, that's not the type of golf we should aspire to have and that we should aspire to see from the top level players because we're removing a, removing a dimension for them, which limits their chance to even separate out with each other, right? If we go down to just one-dimensional golf, well, the chance of separation is diminished. So who is the best player, right? We look at a guy like Ricky Fowler. I mean, God forbid what technology's done to that guy, right? Like if we rolled back to 1982 equipment, <laughs> he's a world beater, I bet, yeah, right? I with what he can do with the ball, where he can position, his control, his love for the game, like, Let's not kid ourselves. You saw all the pictures in the background of the Ryder Cup selection. Those were Ben Hogan pictures, I believe, sketches and other sketches of golf. That dude loves the game. He's fought himself through adversity to get back to the top level. Um, you know, seeing just players be able to separate themselves out would be nice if we could get back to that. Wasn't it telling that the best golf I think I've seen ever in person was the 2019 President's Cup and Tiger Woods, where that second dimension was in play and it looked like there was Tiger and 23 other golfers. That's how far he stood out at that tournament. It was extraordinary. Absolutely. People who know nothing about golf would have watched that and gone, oh, he's clearly by far the very best golfer here <laughs> by an awfully long way. It's interesting. And whenever I come across that, you know, angles don't matter. I mean, you're right, Kevin. We see a lot of golf where the angles don't matter so much. But I would ask even Tiger Woods, would you rather be six feet from the road hole bunker with the flag behind the bunker, or 80 yards back down on the right-hand side of the fairway 
Which of those two shots is easier? And that's a good illustration, I think, of the sort of thing we mean about just bashing it up as far as you can. It shouldn't be. It's a less interesting form of the game if you were to take those two scenarios. That's a less interesting form of the game because the guy who's stuck six feet from the from the front lip of the front edge of the road hole bunker, that's a shot that nobody wants to play. And even in a practice round, that's not fun. So that's what makes the game more interesting. But it, can't, it can't be that simplified, really, can it, that angles don't matter? Mm. No, of course not. I, I've been reading Tom Doak's uh, a little red book of golf course architecture mm-hmm. the last little couple of weeks. Why? And, well, let's back it up for a second. Why, why have you been reading that? I just decided I need to start reading a couple more you're books at the moment, and it was just sitting on the on the shelf. You're a this is There's extraordinary no work, time. Like, it was just sitting there, and I just this, read it, yeah. Okay, yeah. we're going to revisit that at some point. Okay, that's book but, review coming. Okay. Up. But the, uh, continue the, on. A person who is literally putting the golf course in the ground and is talking about how the angles matter of how he is setting it up. It can't just be as simple as like exactly as Kevin says that you can't just say well it doesn't matter. It matters. It doesn't matter. It matters obviously so much less at certain levels of the game, but it's such a a really. I understand all the the reasoning why, but that simplification is is just it. It points to a weak point in golf. It points to a weak point in professional golf. If we yeah. say, you could almost it does play it matter. on a driving range with the technology available. You could almost oh, play the professional game from one spot that's on a, a driving old range. Pete Dyke uh, quote I think that says uh, they they'd play in a car park for five million dollars. Well, I think so. we'll see that, won't we, with the driving well, range? That's thing what Tiger and Rory's yeah. thing is. It's yeah. it's well, take out all the stuff that it's kind just of, a pure test of execution. Yeah, which which again, guys can show that they have elite skills in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, but exactly right. I mean, that twenty nineteen Presidents Cup, I was there, and that it was so clear the skill set of which players could play that golf better than the others. Um, and any time we go to those sort of places, you see the standout of, you know, you know the old course probably does it less now than it used to. Mm-hmm. We're going to um, see that this week at the Walker Cup, I think. Correct. Uh, but I think when you get it in the right conditions and the right kind of thing, Cam Smith, Rory, head-to-head, Cam Smith played creative golf far better than Rory McIlroy did. He played a ground game. He played, you know, that's that's Cam Smith's best golf, is that sort of golf. He just never like gets a, a chance to play. Rolling around in a big dust bowl. Kev, Kevin, one thing I've always been interested in in these top-down diagrams that it looks like they're usually taken off Google Earth um, to do these analysis of spread patterns and everything and, you know, where to aim. Um, is there a way to modify those diagrams so that can take into account the slope and the firmness of the ground. So the dispersion box or whatever it is that like if it was a standard thing, it's just like a, it's an arc, it's an arced rectangle that you would draw because Mm -hmm. you're assuming even dispersion left and right. But I think if you, if you start to say, or a right handers tend to pull it longer, then that skews the, the thing a little bit so that you know, the dispersion pattern is going to be a bit longer on the left and shorter on the right. And then can you also just skew it to take into account the slope and what the ball's going to do on the ground? And obviously what, what the ball's going to do on the ground is going to be dependent on the slope and the firmness. Fix your mic, by the way. What's wrong with it? Well, you're not doing very well with your mic technique. Sorry, I'm, I'm speaking straight into No, no, no I don't know about that. I'm All convinced. Right. You had to go with BJ last week. You need to get onto it. Ken, what's he talking <laughs> about? Is he making any sense? Or can you not hear him because yeah, his mic technique's so bad? 
<laughs> yeah, so like certainly, all right, so this becomes a resources issue and just in terms of the pragmatism, we can do all that. Um, I do all that for some of my very select favorite golfers that I just love working with, typically the guys that love the romantic side of the game too because they also want to nerd out and, and dive into that stuff. It does become a resources game of like, one, using it, the technology to be able to do a three-dimensional scan and then build out a predictive model based on when the ball hits hits the ground and rolls out. It's pretty difficult to do um, just from a technological standpoint, at least what I have access to and what I do, this being my my side hobby. Um, so the, the, the earlier stuff you mentioned in terms of just modifying dispersion, yeah, that's easy. Um, that's built in my, the program I use, which is actually a math program that I kind of back engineered to do this work. That's easy to do. Just, I can, I can take any player's dispersion. I put them out on track, man, a whole session I put them through, try to do that multiple times a year and just build out their dispersion profile. It's a couple click of the buttons. I can build out, you know, right, left, long, short, exactly what it looks like for every club in their bag. Um, but I think this is where the fun part is. And this is why, you know, going back to wanting golf to be two, three, a two and three dimensional game, the way I pose it to a lot of the players I work with is think of the 2D overhead with a little bit of a prediction model on like what the ball is going to do is just like your first practice round, right? So you learn just a little bit. Well, that lets you go into your real practice round and actually judge, okay, what does this ball do on the ground? When this hits in this spot, that's walked a course, that's actually really think hard about what the ball's gonna do and test that out. Um, which I always use as a proponent for why we should play more golf in firm conditions with wide conditions, right? So firm and wide, because then that actually has to get taken into account and from at least what I primarily use, doing it from just the satellite imagery isn't ideal, right? If you're trying to plan for the old course is a perfect example, yeah, you could sit there with everyone and pull up a 3D model with the, the GPS data, the, three, the 3D data, and really try to pick through, but that's gonna that's cumbersome, that's long. And, and I'm not aware of any like AI predictive models that could do it for you right now, um, where you could build it up perfectly, other than the video games do a pretty good job if you've got the course into video games, but still building out like how to build back build that into a player's data. Um, if someone's doing that and can do that, then whatever PJ Pro should pay them whatever they're worth, right? Pay them a ton of money to do that because that's going to be beneficial. Um, so just being able to do that is hard, but that's why you go to the ground. That's why you play a practice round, right? To really look at those. You think of the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne, um, right? That's, yeah, mm -hmm. it was Royal Melbourne, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that That's what needed to be done. They had to spend that practice time figured, thinking on, okay, on number one, won the tee, you know, when it's playing a little downwind, what's this ball going to do depending on what it hits? And you saw the U.S. in that case, I think, make some mistakes um, where the world team actually had a much better strategy going at it and thinking, okay, how do we use the ground to get the ball where we want it to be? Mm. Uh, apart from all of that, why would you want to sit in front of a screen and do that when you could actually just go out and play the golf course, which is a way more fun than <laughs> sitting in front of a screen trying to come up with a predictive model, isn't it? I mean, it just makes... It, yeah, you just... And you just pinpointed why I just don't dive like <laughs> it is a hobby so and I love my UGA job so I don't want to neglect that I also want to play golf but I also you know Sweden's Cove is one of my favorite places in the world so I'll give them a shout out um it's a little nine hole course outside Chattanooga and to this day I've never put any of my data stuff down on it because there's just something to experience in a golf course and not tainting it with this sort of rationalism um 
disenchantment movement that we've had just in the world in general in terms of putting data to everything. That's a kind big, of like kind sorry. of like how Logue plays with golf clubs that don't fit him at all and has way overestimations of his ability and power. Is there not a bigger concept at play there, though, Kevin? Is that we and we are kind of in danger of it in some ways. The players at all levels now have access to information that only PGA Tour pros would have had twenty years ago. You kind of bit by bit take all the fun out of the game. Or what's the point of playing ultimately? If you're a PGA Tour professional, then it's obviously to have the lowest score possible at whatever price. And if there's no fun in the game, well, so what? You're going to earn a big whack of money at the end of it all. But for the rest of us, it feels like so many people in recreational golf, not amateur golf, recreational golf, have kind of fallen for the same trap. And everything about the game is built around trying to get better and make your score better. And if that doesn't happen, then the fun goes out of it. It kind of seems pointless, doesn't it? Or dumb? Can you can you all think of another recreational sport in which this is a phenomenon? Mm. This this chase of improvement through technology and things that exist outside of the grounds of playing the game. No idea. What other recreational sports mm. are there? I don't do the only the only sport. I, no, it's not a sport. But the only thing that I think chess or something no, yeah, like that. It, it, video games is the <laughs> yeah. closest thing yeah. to my mind, where people watch other people play a video game who are better than them to get an idea of how to do it, which is what we do with golf. Mm. we seek out people better than us at something we just do for fun. And the sensible ones give up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And, and, but as to Kevin's point, there's there's no other recreational sport that even I, – I played a lot of cricket and rugby to a decent level, and I never had the data-focused and, and mm. laser-focused that I did with golf because it's just not there. So the question's why, Kevin? Why are we doing this to ourselves? Why do golfers yeah, particularly do it? Yeah, I've been. That's a question I've been mulling over recently in terms of like I can't think of another recreational sport in which we have this persistent chase of improvement that exists outside of the grounds of the game itself, right? Like chess, you play and improve, and you might read about strategy, but that's different than chasing technology to help you get mm. better. Like you're trying to put something in the bag to make you better, and that is persistently happening, right? We go play pickup basketball, tennis. Like you're not each year chasing the newest racket or the newest tennis shoes. Oh, the new tennis shoes are out. They're going to make me run a tenth of a second faster and chase on that ball. I'll slide on clay better. So for whatever reason, golf is unique in that way. And that begs the question, is that is that good for the game? Because I, I think an argument can be made that it is taking something away from the fun of the game, from just the, you play it just to explore it. It's an exploration. It's a hike. It's... Yeah, like there's aspects to it that's not just in this mindset of like, oh, I need to improve. I need to improve. I need to get better. Score, 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 score. Mm. It's relentless. It's a combination, I think, of golf being highly accessorized and also having a handicap system. Like chess has these ELOs, like you've got a – it's essentially Mm -hmm. like a handicap, like you can – you know your your really? relative skill level. Yeah, mm. there's like you, you earn points on chess.com and those sort of places based on who you beat. But that's yeah. and the, and the standard that they play. Um, and then there's this uh, the extremely analytical. Very <laughs> <laughs> very funny. There are. I mean, there are, people get banned from it. But, really? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, but there's these extremely detailed analytics of a game as well where it goes down to the move and judges the move and and at every point in the game it can judge who's up by you know fractions of a of a percent like this person's like position is you know fraction of a percent better than this other person's because of such and such like 
so there is an enormous amount of analysis that goes into chess. I think it's pretty interesting. But um, there, the combination, I, I think that ranking of amateurs is an immediate thing that triggers this in people. Uh, like we've got handicaps. Chess players have the ELO. A lot of ways in amongst sports. So if you think about football or tennis or those kinds of things, golf being a bit like, or not actually not like chess at all, more like snooker or pool in some ways or darts where it's your performance and then somebody else's performance and the two don't well, never golf, meet. Golf with all of that stripped away is more like surfing. I yes. Reckon. If you strip away the handicap system mm. and you strip away the accessorization, mm. those two things, mm. golf is much more analogous to surfing or skiing maybe, although skiing has a lot of accessories because it's much harder, I think. It's much more subjective, uh, I think. I'm not a surfer, but I think it's a lot more subjective to evaluate your skill versus another there's person's skill. Um, but there's no industry it's also in played pushing this stuff. Either, well, that's right. There is. Well, yeah, nothing yeah. like uh, that. Of course, there is. How there's big's the surfing industry? Huge. Surfboards. It's really huge. Surfboards. <laughs> you can accessorize. You can accessorize your board to non-stop levels of different yeah. fins, different leg ropes, different different, or, different and wax, and all close this to golf. The amount of accessorization in golf, from rangefinders to the buggy no, to the no, bag to the clubs to the ball that you're straining. Use to the we're straining the analogy, I think, but the. The, the point I'm making is you've is, got a multi-billion dollar industry in golf with millions of people who play, and they're marketing that to those people. In surfing, I think you've probably got that on a smaller, but it can't be anywhere near as big, surely. I, th- I, I think you you look at, when you talk about is the, the accessorization and buying new equipment to get better and stuff, you're not talking about golf the game, you're talking about golf the industry, yes. because those two things are exceptionally mm-hmm. separated. Mm-hmm. Golf the game is anything in terms of... It's a guy who goes and plays with his clubs he's had since 1982, once a week, doesn't keep score, does it just for the exercise. Mm-hmm. It's also what they're going to play at the Ryder Cup. Mm-hmm. The industry is a separate, separate thing. thing. And how much people involve and ingratiate themselves into that industry varies dramatically. I mean, yeah, there's handicap and scoring is an obsession in Australia particularly. We've spoken about it constantly. And, and Clates, I think, particularly talks about it, that you can – you can play competition golf at most golf clubs seven days a yeah, week. Absolutely. I, I personally have no interest in doing that. So it means that I probably play far less golf because of that, because of just, I just want to go play. Mm. But that, I just want to go play the game. Uh, but I'm a part of the industry, but my playing of the game is completely mm-hmm. separated from the industry. Um, and I think separating those two is impossible, obviously, but they are in golf, again, like unlike any other sport, more separate than anything else. Mm, it's sort of unique. Kevin, Kevin you, yeah. you wrote something yeah. recently about a revelation that you'd had. Is this this, this this evolution of thinking about the way you thought about the game from predominantly what we see on television to what we're talking about with the old course and Royal Melbourne and this evolution, is that – are we enlightened, those of us who think of it that way, or is this the gift that all golfers could experience if they thought about the game differently? Yeah, I think that's, you know, we got to be careful not to just be elitist. Yes. Right? Everybody has their own relationship with the game. And, and certainly, if you've been part of the game for a long time and you're also just someone that has a disposition to be reflective and dive, dive into the history, right? It's easy to say, okay, I'm enlightened, now let me mm. teach you, which I, I think is the, the wrong way to look at it, right? Enlightenment in terms of, let me share with you with the way I think about the game and take it or leave it, whatever, right? Because I think we can go to the separation that exists with the industry versus the game. I think the question we have to ask is how much influence does the industry have on someone's 
entry into the game and their ability to enjoy the game just for the game itself. And I think that's a persistent question we should be asking ourselves in the golf world. Because I would say the industry, like I think it's often overstated, the industry's influence on the game of golf. And I'd I'd include the PGA Tour with the industry in the sense of, I don't think they're huge agents of change. They don't cause radical change within the game. But I do think we underestimate the the amount they impede changes to the game. And right now, the distance debated is, the exact, is a perfect example of that. If the OEMs did not exist at the strength they have and the PGA Tour didn't exist, rollback would have happened a while ago, yeah, I bet. No, for sure. Like, a governing body, I mean, RNA, do something. USGA, do something. But they feel probably rightfully so, a bit handcuffed because what they can't do is get caught up in lawsuits, right? And if OEMs threaten them behind the scenes on that, which maybe they do, maybe they don't, I wouldn't be surprised if they do. It's the same thing with the PGA and Tour and Live. It's like the, the governing bodies can't afford, they can get outspent very quickly on any, any threats that come their way. So I think they do impede our change. And because tying back to your revelation, like, you know, we need to be honoring the principles of the game that was founded on. I think that was the point I was making on that. Like, I used to love perfect conditions, perfect grass. Like, man, growing up in college golf, we played a tournament with bad grass. It's like, why are we even here? This is, this is terrible. Um, we played Fenway in late fall. Um, amazing tilling ass course, right? Like, at that time, though, I had no clue about any of that. I'm like, there's leaves everywhere. The grass is mud over there. This place is a, kind of a dump. Right. And then now looking back, it's like, well, that's entirely the wrong perspective to take on it. You were playing this classic golf course that has this huge history and one of the best golf courses in the Northeast. Like, why were you just judging it based on its turf? So I think that's something like thinking about this disconnect or or distinction that happens between the two. From an enlightenment standpoint, we should always be revisiting the principles of the game because that's what lasts forever, right? Like, and that's not a thing of nostalgia. Nostalgia is just affect. That's just a longing for something that made you happy. No, this is like following the principles of the game gives you a constant ethos you can weave throughout history to maintain something so you're just not at the whims of the current trends, um, which often, especially, you know, before the show, we're talking about Western capitalism, like, you're just at the whims of the current trends. When that's what you subscribe to, you, you don't have a backbone. You're just following what the like most the small the short term bottom line is, or where the, the voices are. You just go there and you just follow that along. And that's just I don't know. That's that lurch. Speaking, I don't think that's a good way to live life. Lurch from quarter to quarter, company like we've talked about before. <laughs> Lurch, you know, yeah. just produce a profit this quarter somehow, and then try and do it again somehow the next time. It's well, speaking of Western capitalism, <laughs> we've, go got an, we've got an American. <laughs> Supposedly, you're an expert. Can you tell me what do the OEMs have to lose commercially from mm. a rollback? Because nobody can explain that to me. Yeah, I honestly. Uh, I'm ignorant enough that like I couldn't explain what they had to lose. I haven't thought that deeply about it. Um, Neither have I. Uh, yeah, like I think a lot of it's a bit of a show and dance. Like maintaining control, a lot of time is just all you always being the decision maker. So if all of a sudden you feel threatened that you're not the dis- decision maker and direct it, you're going to act in a way to try to preserve that direction that you you've set. So some of it could just be that, right? Their businesses and like hey, we have a path set and we don't want to spend the time to reset it. It could be that. Because I think on the engineering side where I live some of my, my early applied math life, like you get excited when new stuff mm-hmm. happens. And when it's just like the old stuff and you're just fine tuning and you're just working the margins, there's still creativity there and there's still excitement, but it's nothing compared to like, hey, the rules just change. What are we going to do? Because if you're top level, 
that's what drives you. You're like, hey, I can separate more, right? Like if you're a great golfer mm-hmm. right now, if you're a if you're if you um, ball strike the piss out of it, you want the rollback. And I think some of the top ball strikers have alluded to that, right? Like Billy Horschel being one of them, right? As chirpy as he is, he made it clear he's like, I hit the center of the face more than these other guys. Give me the new, keep roll it back. I'm going to separate myself out. And if you're a true leader of your craft, you look forward, like any new change is a new opportunity to get a stronger foothold of the the world you live in. I think think one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons is these brands have built so much around what they call leadership and that, you know, it, it isn't necessarily a true thing that you're playing the same thing as tour players. But the branding has been built on that for so long. The pyramid of influence. The pyramid of influence is how golf has worked equipment-wise. That's why guys wear a hat with a brand on it. That's why their bag has a brand on it. That's why the golf ball titleist is the example for everyone else in the industry by producing a golf ball with a consistent model name year after year after year because that model name has as much recognition almost as the brand. And you then buy because of that. Not everybody does. No, 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 of course not. But you then buy because of that. Now, breaking that down, that's not just, you know, the the search to build the best Pro V1 each year and everything like that. That's the spend on the players they've got. That's everything and all the R&D. I, I've done a lot with R&D um R&D staff from golf companies in the past, and, and Kevin's exactly right. That chance to... Mm-hmm minimalistically improve something from one model to the next, you can hear how excited they are about it and how impressive it is. Like uh, I'm, I'm a part of everyone as well that took, that kind of puts away a little bit of that sort of stuff as it's just the same as last year and everything like that. But well, I think you were saying like that, that marginal improvement is, it can be exciting, but it's not as exciting as the whole rule base being changed. No, it's not. It's like, Oh, but, there's a whole new challenge. But now. I, I've, I've gone and, spent time at golf ball manufacturing facilities, it's not as simple as just, oh, yeah, we just put a slightly different thing through the machine. Yeah, it's not just a tweak. It's I mean, not a... Why clubs change significantly. Like, yeah. The M2 was the greatest club ever built. Yeah. The new TaylorMade looks nothing like that because engineers are creative, right? They, yeah. they want to make it better and that's going to create significant to changes. M- to make the formulation of a golf ball and, and the stuff that goes into that and then the tooling of then how the mm. dimples work and everything sure. like it is such a major thing. So to make multiple models, multiple different things, and then from a player standpoint, having worked in this side of things for a long time, exactly as Kevin just mentioned, the slightest tweak to something changes everything. Everything else. Years ago, when TaylorMade brought out the SLDR driver, they changed what was optimal in terms of launch. So they went from, we mm-hmm. always launched between 12 and 15 degrees and we spun around 2,500 RPMs, maybe to 3,000. TaylorMade said, no, we're going to launch higher and we're going to spin less. So everyone starts chasing that. That changes your golf ball requirement. Your golf ball then changes your iron and wedge requirement. It changes your bag setup. It's a, it's a wholesale change that we talk about a minimalistic change. Um, so it, you, I can understand it. It's a complete industry shift. The bigger issue, though, I don't, I don't know whether you agree with this, Kevin, is laziness. I've never seen yet a manufacturer seriously tackle the notion of trying to bring new people into the game. Let's not use the grow the game term. TaylorMade had that faux thing they did a few years ago with uh, Mark King, but that was as much a marketing exercise as anything it felt to me. They're not serious about that. 
they're only interested in fighting over the existing golf market. And that's always struck me as madness. So the laziness is we know that the existing golf market wants to buy distance. We've proven by selling it to them for the last hundred years and they keep on buying it. We don't want to have to try and sell a different message, which just strikes me as madness. But that to me is what it's – there's just a laziness about it. Why try and grow the pie when you just fight over the share of the pie that you've got now? That's what it feels like to me. And that's just that's not a great business model, I don't think, but Yeah, that's that's a good question. Like is it laziness? Like why can't they promote shaping the ball? Why can't they promote shaping the ball? Yeah, that, but that doesn't bring more people into the game is much harder than selling to the converted. Agreed. Yeah. That doesn't I don't think they're too, oh, sorry, they're two is, separate issues. Though. Is that lazy or not? It's like I, uh, I'd argue Yeah, I think Hmm. I, I I'll be empathetic. I think there's a there is a disingenuous aspect to it. Like, just because if we roll back, we don't need. To, my opinion here, we, the cell doesn't need to change, mm-hmm. right? Like, okay, we're just changing the requirements of clubs and balls. We can still sell distance in the exact same way. It's all relative. Relative right? is the like, word, isn't it? Yeah, yeah great. And like my, you know, I'm a two sixty five <sighs> flyer. Like, oh, I'm gonna go back to two fifty eight. Darn, like. The 320 hitter goes back to 310, whatever they go back to. It's not like we're seeing like, oh, you were hitting 240, now you're going to hit at 170. And there's just this wholesale change. I mean, the average golfer is not even going to notice a difference mm-hmm. in their everyday play-to-play, right? It's just, yeah, they might be a club longer into a hole, but overall it's not going to be this, oh, my gosh, the game has fundamentally changed. So I think it's disingenuous from the OEMs in the sense of they can still do the same sales. They can just, everything's going to stay the same, it's just the ball's going to go a little shorter like still approach it in the same way still approach the same club development every year and, well, yeah. as you say it is all relevant but back to the question then like is it's easier to sell to an existing market than try to create new ones is that, does that make it right um, I, I think there's in, in any commercial scenario they, they're going to evaluate that and they're going to say what's the cost of going into this new market and what's the potential upside of it and the maths isn't necessarily going to work out. It's just going to be easier to, to go. But also I think it's up to other parts of the industry to disrupt that a little bit. So from a golf ball point of view, it might be it's Vice or one of those sort of companies that needs to come in and uh, say, well, we're going to appeal to a different crowd. We're, we're going to appeal to a different segment of golfers or to non-golfers and and try and bring that in. And if that disruption works, then that's a test case for the bigger manufacturers to follow along. I, I think that there's so much of that false disruption in golf. Yeah. So you mentioned a, yeah. a golf ball company, yeah. their logo, who are they trying to Very copy? similar. Yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and if you knew, if you knew to golf, like Kirkland, maybe. You, don't, you don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it, I, think, I think it's really easy to, to say – Maybe there's laziness in manufacture. For example, Callaway make an oversized golf ball that's easier to get in the air and easier to hit because it's bigger. That's targeting mm-hmm. new golfers. Mm-hmm. Majority of R&D and majority of products that are released are game improvement to super game improvement. Because mm-hmm. most golfers are rubbish. Yeah, and new golfers are even worse. Not always, sadly. Not always. <laughs> part and, of, and humili- spend a humiliation lot of squared. Part of, part of the issue better, with yeah. golf is with that pyramid of influence is yeah. there the skill level that doesn't you know match up with the fall down of that. So you spend all this money getting Tiger Woods on your staff, 
you know, and you give Tiger Woods his golf clubs to most people. Good luck. And good luck. Um, and then having in the retail environment, part of the reason that that new golfer that you used to attract with package sets and all that sort of stuff, a number of years ago now, that became a financially unsustainable model. Mm-hmm. It became so hard to do for every single level of the industry. And it then caused a shift of, well, you're going to have to spend more, or you're going to have to go to second hand, or you're going to have to do that. And that's when you had your eBay bubble with second hand and all that sort of stuff. And then the problem is part of me goes, that's so good. You can get this and you can get that, but you're getting stuff that's ill-equipped for you. And, you know, mm-hmm. part of that argument, you know, people will talk about club fitting and I, I'm not good enough to get club fitting. I'm not good enough to use a top golf ball. The worse you are, the more benefit you mm-hmm. get out of those things. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you bring in someone mm-hmm. who thinks they're not that great and you give them properly fit golf clubs and you give them one golf ball to use every time, it's the consistency of performance. It's a performance. Food, so isn't it? Yeah. To what Kevin does, yeah. predictability for someone who is learning the game is the greatest advantage, but how you get that without spending huge amounts of money without them knowing as well, because that's part of the problem with the industry too, of course, is you come in thinking all I need is a couple of clubs and whatever. There's a greater benefit, but do you want to spend that to get that benefit? And what do you want to get out of golf? I think uh, we could ask that question of Kevin and the, uh, another business of his called (laughs) golf blueprint, uh, which I'll read the tagline for it. Data informed golf improvement plans customized for your game. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so I'll build. Let me start. I think we unfairly critique OEMs so much because they have such a big influence mm. on the game, and they're just so much in our face that, like this grow the game debate. Like, I don't think the onus is on OEMs to grow the game at all. Like, that's not their purpose. That's not why they exist. And them trying to grow the game, I mean, they're just right now. They would just be bringing people. Let's say they bring people into the game. Well, all those people aren't going to be welcome to the game for other social reasons, right? There's there's a, a, an assortment of reasons in golf that the game does not grow, and in the OEMs, there's a very small percentage of that problem. That you know, the game itself, the structures, the system, systemic structures we put in place, specifically here in the United States, I know in Australia too. There's there's things to wrestle with there, especially when we compare ourselves with the UK and the the more democratic aspects. This, like, this is that fair let's and be balanced clear, like, and thoughtful those are, stuff. Those are the yeah, those are the things we should be pounding our fists about and not spending 25 minutes talking and criticizing OEMs about, you know, getting people into the game, what they're doing. Because, yeah, we think about the game improvement stuff. They are doing a big part on helping people get in and enjoy the game. But then circling back to Golf Blueprint, like um, my partner, Nico Darris, and I met. Um, this was right before COVID, doing some just strategy stuff. And long story short, uh, basically, we wanted to think, like, how can we help the everyday golfer? Because so much of what we see online is geared towards or based on high-level golf. Even think of Lou Stagner's work, uh, Scott Fawcett's work, and um, some of those players in the field. It's all based on tour-level data, Mm -hmm. most of it, right? And the stuff they're pumping out. Like, look at yourself compared to a tour player. Like, you don't try to be like them. So Nico and I came to space, like, well, what can we do to actually help the everyday golfer out, right? That 12 handicap... Um, or one of our favorite stories, um, shout out Lonnie. Uh, we use this, we use Lonnie all the time. Just wanted to, you know, essentially break 90 with his boss, right? Was really nervous playing with him. What can I do to get better so I can not be nervous and eventually do that? And we started Golf Blueprint just f- for that purpose of giving just sort of targeted practice to the 
person that can get out there two to three days a week, spend, you know, 30 minutes to 60 minutes on the range, um, you know, what can they do to just to make sure they are improving and getting better? Because we feel like they're a largely neglected audience. People are trying to help them, but what they're trying to help them with is almost often based on things that are well beyond their reach at the current moment. I think that's true for most. Uh, we very quickly get into these discussions, Kevin, as we've done today about all the stuff. Once you're in golf, what's at the end of the the end of the day? What's it all about? What is the appeal of golf? I mean, doesn't all of what we've just talked about miss with someone who doesn't play golf? We've just spoken a language that someone who doesn't play golf wouldn't understand. They would not have understood the last twenty five minutes of this conversation in any way, shape, or form. So, what does the game have to offer, and how do we share it with more people? I mean, I think you know if you. When you were a child, the games that you played, what did you enjoy about them? Fun. It's just fun, isn't it? You want to have fun. Yeah, you're not playing it for any purpose typically, right? You might have scoring or whatever, but when you're playing pickup basketball as a kid or whatever it is, you're just playing at the play, right? Like, oh, hey, look, we got six people on the court. All right, three here, three here. Let's just go play. Sometimes you keep score, sometimes you don't, right? Golf offers that vehicle, mm. right? It's, it's that childhood experience that we can have as an adult where you can just go out there, play it how you want. And, and I think this gets to the point Adrian brought up of score being such an issue. Like when most people are entering the game of golf, score doesn't matter. Difficulty certainly doesn't matter. If difficulty mattered when people entered golf, no one would Not, make it past day one. That's exactly right. right. Except your freaks, right? Like you have a few freaks, they just, the club gets back on that perfect play and they hit their first ball and it flies in the air. But other than that, everybody would leave, right? Um, so I think golf offers that and offers to us in a permanent way, right? We can enjoy golf in that way our entire life where it is just an exploration of play um, where we can do what we want and enjoy it how we want. And I don't think you can say that about most other recreational sports, right? Because they're, they're against other people directly, tennis, basketball, so on. Golf is that one, one person, or we have 64 going down the first hole of Sweetens Cove doesn't matter. You can just go out there and enjoy it how you want to enjoy it. Such a conundrum golf is that people talk about the, the, the game so hard. If we made it easier, we'd bring more people in. The truth of it is, that's the appeal of the game. Yeah, is the difficulty. no one would play. Exactly. What did Tiger say? If everyone shot 59 the first time out, they go, that's no fun. Let's go find another game that's interesting. No. <laughs> so, but I, yeah, was I, Robert, Robert Hunter said something about like the greatness of the game is that it can never be mastered. Yeah. yeah. Um, something like that. I, I think that looking at the golf blueprint stuff over the last couple of days, it's it makes so much sense to me that if you're new at something, having a way to improve with kind of out really realizing it just kind of makes sense. If you, if you decided you want to start going to the gym tomorrow, if you just went in there and started randomly picking up heavy things and moving them around and being like, oh, yeah, okay, this, this is work. I'm doing the gym. Yeah, that's right. You, you will get some improvement in your strength, but you won't necessarily – find the, the quickest way to improvement and you won't actually find enjoyment in it. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to do that. So many people come into golf with that. I, exactly. I ran a driving range for so long and just Ted Sterling used to say and really brilliantly that, oh, these people aren't here to practice. They're here for exercise. Come in same day every week. Swing the club 150 buy, buy times. Buy 100 balls, <laughs> beat the living hell out of them yeah. as quick as they could. No target, no nothing. And then leave, and you want, and there's no wonder people don't get better. Like they, that, someone thinks I've got half an hour every week to to practice my golf, and that's how I'm going to do it. If that half hour was spent with planning and with a method, I remember when I was trying to play a bit, and 
a coach coming to me and saying, how do you practice your short game? How do you practice your wedge work? I said, I hit shots. It's always what I've always done. And I love that stuff as a kid. I'd go and just try and hit every different shot. That's how you build a skill base. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. then him saying to me, here's these colored cones. You put those out at 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 meters, and you run from your 8-iron to your lob wedge with all your different shots, landing at those, mixing them up, doing all that sort of stuff. And I was like, that's boring. Like, why would I want to do that? I then found that the most mentally engaging way to practice. And you'd go and play and you just go, oh, this is the one I've just got to hit the pitching wedge that lands 10 meters and it runs out here. I improved so fast compared to what I did with just simple, like simply having a plan. And I could get it done in half an hour and looking at the golf blueprint stuff, it's exactly that. It's this, it's making a plan for your improvement. Feels almost counterintuitive given a like we're, we're sort of disagreeing with ourselves. We should just play for fun. But everybody who plays this game, the driving force is to somehow improve or get a bit better while simultaneously not caring whether they improve and just having fun. What are we trying to say here? I can never work no, this game out. It's bizarre golf. It really is. You... You just summarize it perfectly. If I could quote exactly what you just said, it's like, because you mentioned the not improvement occurring, that it's actually not the improvement that we chase. It's in terms, this is not just in golf specifically. Enjoyment comes through the process, right? If we put all the stake on improvement, again, how many people would leave the game? Mm. I went from a plus four to a scratch right now. Like, that's a four. A handicap four difference. I should be leaving the game if it was about improvement. You can feel the tears welling up here in all of us, Kevin. We really yeah. feel for you. That's <laughs> awful. What a horrible way to live. <laughs> I just significantly. I mean, how many people yeah. practice for years and they hang around that same two hand? You know, like I'm a six to an eight, a six to an eight. Yeah. So it's not. It's not about actual improvement. We say it's about golf improvement all the time. Like, yeah, do we get players? Do most of our players get better? They do. Is that why they enjoy golf blueprint? Is that why they use golf blueprint? No, it's a process. Like golf blueprint helps them have fun. It helps them be creative in their practice. To look at practice as a game, as something to enjoy. And I think that's golf. Everything we do as human nature, we typically want to get better. We want to get better how we treat other people, right? We want to be a better, a better parent. We want to be a better sibling. We want to be a better son, daughter, whatever. Like that's just human nature, and I and I think that's healthy. Yeah, you know. But in sport, we don't actually care that much like think of pick up basketball or pick up tennis you don't care if you get better you just keep playing it because you play it in golf the same way it's fun to try to improve but it's not about the actual improvement that keeps us going it's like are we having fun in that pursuit and if we do improve that's just cherry on the top it's right? a that's journey just, those not are the a destination is that right journey not destination yeah. that's what golf is well, no. you know even if they're not practicing complete, oh, at go. least they could look, look the part yeah. absolutely they could <laughs> if how would they do that like well they could dress up in angus and grace go golfing gear i certainly think i look good when i wear sponsor the, of this podcast sponsor of this podcast yeah. magnificent clothier in in sydney's paddington matt burns owner <laughs> and proprietor and designer matt, if you're still listening after an hour into the podcast yeah, that's right. we're, doing, we're, we're doing, <laughs> doing our work the ad rate. where can you find them like uh, 39 William Street, Paddington. And Angus and Grace Go Golfing.com, I believe. And Angus and Grace Go Golfing on Instagram. Instagram. That's right. Yeah. When can we meet the dogs? Get Matt to bring the dogs in. Uh, I want to meet I've, Angus I've and Grace. I spent a lot of time with I'm Angus sure and have, Grace. He came in that day to the studio and we never saw them. Angus so. and Grace sometimes hang out in the shop. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'll go over there one day. People actually go into the shop I all think the Jimmy time. Jimmy and I'll be there. Yeah, tomorrow Friday, afternoon, yeah. Yeah. to welcome home you and Porter. Can't go tomorrow. That's crazy. Uh, they've got a great range of no laying up no gear laying in up. shop yep, at the moment, right. which I happen to be wearing oh, at the moment. The uh, nice. Australian distributor of uh, no laying up 
uh, exclusive merchandise. Well, okay. I might be uh, I might be in town in July next year, and if so, I'm going to have to. Uh, oh, in Sydney, you got to come oh, visit. Fantastic. You got to come hang out in the shop. It's we where gotta, I. Do hang on, you might want to come to the studio too. Would that be all right? <laughs> <laughs> you might find some time to come in and record something with us. That would be incredible. Uh, it would be great if you did come. It would be wonderful to to uh, to meet you, Kevin. So to bring all this back to the start, maths and golf, how do you make them all fit together? Do you ever think of one without the other, or do they always come together in your mind? And can maths I... help the rest of us with our golf and thinking about our golf and the way we think about it? Ooh, that's a that's a good question. That's the I'll give the academic answer: yes and no. Um, <laughs> nice. Right, it, it depends. I mean, you ask any any professor something, that's where they're going to start. And, and I mean that earnestly in this case, in the sense of the data movement in golf helps a lot of people. But and I'll speak to people trying to get better and like really improve and play competitively. If your mind isn't committed to the data then you might get worse, right? Like what's the most important thing in golf is being committed to your plan and committed to every shot you hit. And if data clouds you, um, maybe work on getting it so it doesn't, but don't just like fully dive in and like, I have to do this and definitely gonna make it better, right? You gotta have the right mindset going in, you gotta look at the right way, have the right people you work with to, to make it better. Uh, and on that too, if it takes away from your enjoyment of the game, just don't do it, right? We're on this earth for a short time period why take away your enjoyment of something you love to do or you like to do? And I say that from personal experience, having left golf for 10 years once, got back in the competitive game, and then with the math stuff, sometimes like pulled away too much of my romanticism in the game, and I like lost the enjoyment, right? Every time I was out there, it's like, oh, I should be practicing, I should be getting better or whatever, versus like, no, let's just go hit the ball around. Uh, so I think it's one of those, I'm about personal battles. I think that's a, you know, a good self-reflection, the thing to have, to always thinking about your fulfillment. Um, so on that note, I definitely range. There's some years I'm deep in the squares of circles in golf blueprint and I'm putting a ton of hours into it. And there's other, you know, months, stands of months where I'm like, no, just get it away from me. Like when I went to Scotland last year on a golf trip, phone away, computer away, didn't pull it out the whole time. Nice. Didn't look at the courses ahead of time nice. and just played golf. Was that just your honeymoon, hit, didn't, by the way? What was that? Didn't it? It was, the second trip was honeymoon. So, okay. right. Long story short, we were supposed to get married on the bridge in St. Andrews in uh, May of 2020. And I think everybody listening to this podcast knows what happened in spring of 2020. So wedding got canceled. Golf trip got postponed. Went on the golf trip May 2022. But then the wife and I, um, we got a secret small wedding um, back here in the States. We did make it over for the 150th Open. So nice. we... We went up to St. Andrews for that just to see see what it would have been like to get married there. Yeah. Kevin, can I ask, given you're at a, a college that's a magnificent golf school, with what you know about mathematics and, dra- and da- data into golf, is it impossible to play elite level competitive golf without engaging in data analysis and that sort of thing, do you think? Wait, say that again, you broke up for just a is second. It, is it impossible to play elite level amateur golf and professional golf without data and data analysis i don't think so um you know i don't have any cases well i i mean there's plenty of college players i know that just don't give a rats about the data yeah because i I could imagine a a new student at just uga might come in who's just never ever cared and being dictated to as to this is how we do it could you know hold their progression back yeah and certainly then I would say, okay, if you want to maximize your talent, I do think it is 
it is an important component. I, I do think something's missing out. At least, I mean, the strategy side alone, just at least embrace data there. Even if you're not using it to inform your practice in like areas of improvement, right? You're not going like full Matty Fitz uh, of tracking every shot you hit on the range and comparing it to shots on the course and going deep down, you know, deep down in or the Molinari brother. You know, even if you're not doing that, at least on the strategy side, margins matter. I always call golf, the strategy side of it's like F1 where it's just the margins make all the difference mm-hmm. in a row. Look at what Red Bull did this year for those that follow F1, right? They didn't, it's not like they improved significantly in the sense of they have this spaceship car and everybody's like, whoa, look at that thing. It's totally different. No, they improved a couple margins and now they're dominant. And golf's the same way, right? If you can improve a couple, just a tenth of a shot here, a tenth of a shot there with strategy, that's going to make the difference. So you think of these guys, Justin Lauer, Ohio boy, right? Misses one putt one time and that costs them a card. Um, that's the result of a margin. One margin somewhere else, and he's Victor Hovland, got his card going forward. Victor Hovland improving his chipping a little bit. I think he's, yeah. he got up to 60th or something in yeah. PJ Tour scrambling or something, which is good enough. So, putting that aside, how does maths and how does that kind of thinking work with, let's, the person we all boy always point to in this regard, Sevi? Could he have been better with data input? Ooh. Or is he just the ultimate artist? He and Lee Trevino are the two that probably Gosh, that's yeah, Lee Trevino was another one I was thinking. I've never thought about this question with them. Wow, you've put me on the spot. Ben Hogan, uh, I think, would probably have loved what you do, but I'm not sure. Trevino as well. I, I reckon a mathematician would have loved so, to have worked with Trevino because he could hit it where he's looking every single time. So, yeah, here's I think here's where I would settle in the moment on this, and I, I – obtain permission to change my judgment later uh, <laughs> at any moment. Um, you know, Phil, okay, let's use Phil Mickelson as a case study. Phil Mickelson's a very creative player, right? Hits it all over, but he's cerebral very. too. Mm. And so he follows data. And like you look at how he plays Augusta, like mm-hmm. it is a very data-informed strategy-informed approach. People think he's all risk-reward. If you watch how he plays Augusta, especially in the greens, he is arguably as strategic as Tiger playing in the greens. His major difference is when he's a six iron off pine straw, he's like, I got to hit a shot right now, right? Tiger's a little bit more conservative there, although Tiger will also, I call them singularities when players are like, they just ignore the data, right? And they just feel something, they step up and hit it. And I I believe that's that's a legitimate thing for the top players. I think Seve, you know, not knowing them personally at all, Seve and Lee, being that brilliant of golfers, they're also very cerebral golfers. So I bet they would have entertained and took something from it, right? Even if they didn't deep dive into it, they would have been like, hey, this is helping golfers. I need to at least look into it, right? I'll go, maybe we go in with skeptical eyes, but they would have learned something. They might not have used it in their everyday, every tournament, but I bet they would have like took a serious look at it because all the, that's what elites do. They, they're not, they're, they, they might be skeptical, but they take a look at anything that might help them. And I bet they would have done that. And would that have changed Sevy's game? No, who knows? He might have just said, no, nah, like that's not for me and learned a couple small things, but then, you know, he's going to hit bad drives and when he's under that bush, it's going to be a singularity. He's like, I don't care what the data says. Like I can get on my knees and I can hit this shot and the data doesn't account for that because these other blokes can't do that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what the best do too, right? They, they're, they are also the best at acknowledging their talent and yeah. when they can stand out, um, and they, 
the psyche lets them do that, right? They're able to compose themselves and hit the shots when they need to yeah. they hit the shot. The shot that every data point tells you you should never hit right. ever is the one that will win you the tournament at the right moment at the right time. And that's a different shot on Thursday to what it is on well, that, Sunday too. That's Mickelson says yeah, exactly. to win a big tournament, yeah. there's one shot there's every shot. time. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you could go through every tournament he's ever won and been like, oh, where's the shot? But he will tell you there's a shot and it may have just been a decision between five and six iron yeah, to get yeah. it to a back flag. Yeah. Um, you I might think, have laid up that shot on Thursday from the pine straw. Yeah, that's right. On the 13th hole. Yeah. The, it might have been the sensible exactly thing right. to I do. Call them, yeah. I call them with the players I work with, I call them singularities, yeah. where like depending on the player, I'll give them so many a tournament. I'll be like, okay, you have six singularities this tournament, right? Or you have maybe two per round, and you use the first one, and if it was the wrong decision, you don't get the second one, right? So you give them sort of a bank like, hey, here's what I want you to do, mm-hmm. but I'm going to give you X number. And then after several tournaments, you look back and say, okay, you – you used up eight of them, seven of them were successful, or one of them was successful. Like, okay, one was successful, you're done. You just don't have a good enough judgment of your own talent and when you can rise up to the occasion versus, you know, if you track a player, and I had one player that was like 21 of 24 that they came out on the positive side. And it's like, okay, you have a really good judgment of when you can step up and hit a golf shot. So... I'll maybe give you a few more, or let's just stay where we're at, and just keep in mind you only have a you have this many you can use in a tournament. If you exhaust them on Thursday, too bad. Like you cannot add any more, and just stick to that sort of rule based, just to hold them back a little bit. Really interesting. I like that, isn't it? That, well, it's that concept of like a caddy is so valuable to an mm-hmm. average golfer because they are so much more realistic with their skill level. It's not necessarily course knowledge. It's you can't you, hit you that can't shot. Hit that it's shot. Like Bones, Bones was allowed one over one, one veto, yeah. one veto, one a year. veto mm-hmm. per year. I think with the Sevy question, it's fascinating. You, you never know looking back at these sort of things, but those guys who are so good find things and just drill in. I mean, you look at the way he went about the golf swing stuff, where he became so obsessive. Absolutely. That was kind of the version of data at that time. Mm. Video being new, Maca yeah, gradient, mm. like the photo of, of of Faldo giving him a lesson in his you know swimming shorts and yeah. loafers because. It was. It was I, you'd imagine that the way he thought about golf. That if someone like Kevin came to present Sevy with this thing and said, "This is how you can practice your best and play your best," it would be this full embrace. And then that twig of being the creative guy of going, "Ah oh, no, but it says no, but it's a yes yeah. on this golf shot." Whereas Hogan might have said, "Well, what are you telling me this for? I already know it all." Yeah, <laughs> you can give me all the data you want. I already know it. Don't worry yeah, about it. Right. I figured it out. I dug yeah. it out of the dirt already. That's the fascinating yeah, part. Yeah, I think of golf, the, right? the only thing he cared about was how to make putting less yeah. the game. Right. Like yeah. if, you, if you had that answer to him, I think he would. Yeah. He would listen to that. Putt should only count for half a shot. Yeah, that's that right. was his solution to that. That's right. Yeah. You'd be up for that, wouldn't you, Jimmy? <laughs> is that a distance-based thing? <laughs> they count for half a shot when they're inside three feet. No, those are, yeah, those shouldn't count at all. <laughs> it should just be a ring around the hole, and once it's in there, you pick it up, and that's it's a freebie. You can hit it if you want. Yeah. yeah. Who cares? Kevin, we will let you go. It's been fascinating to chat to you, my friend. I do recommend it. I'll put a link in the show notes to the squares. Squares and circles.me is the website. And the first piece of yours that I read was basically the – premise for the podcast we do with Golf Australia Magazine. What is it about golf? We call it the thing about golf. And I think every person you ask, there'll be a different answer. And you've written several hundred words here without coming up with a definitive response. And that's a great thing. It means our <laughs> podcast series can keep going. But I do urge people to go and have a read on some of your musings on the game of golf. It's really interesting stuff. We appreciate also, you taking some time today, mate. You can also get a lot more Kevin at uh, his oh, yeah, podcast that he does with Matt Considine. 
um, for new club golf. New club. For which we had Matt on Kevin, the show. Yeah, we had a nice bloke lovely too. young fella. Matt. Really nice. Guy. Yeah, um, and they were college roommates. That's how they met. Uh, okay, there yeah, you go. Wasn't through golf. Yep. At what school, Kevin? University of Akron. Okay, there you go. Okay. Uh, and by the way, college and um, speaking uh, of, uh, pretty sure it was your podcast, wasn't it, Kevin? Where you had the professor on talking about the Saudi Arabia and all, you know the. The laziness with which we approach the whole live thing and Saudi generally and the Middle East generally was it, yeah. it was you guys wasn't it? Yeah, I'll give uh, Joshua Ralston yeah. a shout out. He's a professor of uh, I forget his technical title, but basically in Muslim studies and Muslim ideologies and, and theology um, at the University of Edinburgh. Which you know he lives the dream we all talk about. Yeah. The professor, those of us that play <laughs> golf, of moving to the University yeah. of Edinburgh and being a member at I shouldn't being a member at North Berwick. Um, Decent. He actually, you know, we all say, oh, we're going to do that. Yeah. He is the one that actually did it, and he's uh, he's living a life and also just a brilliant mind on it. Um, yeah, he's a good person to listen to on that in terms of making the broader point of, like, golf just being a small vehicle for them in terms of the, the broader um, approach of their, them with the, uh, Dubai um, in terms of moving forward to a global superpower in the economy. It's a fantastic episode that I recommend everybody should listen to, that golf take on because, again, speaking of laziness, we're very lazy in the Western in the media, aren't we, Kevin? We're, so we label things, this is good, this is bad, that's bad, this we can make people afraid of, so we'll use that. It sells papers and it sells airtime and, you know, we just are very lazy about the way we go about these things. So I, I, will, I might even go and have a look in your feed, see if I can find that episode and put a link to that so people can have a listen to it. But recommend recommended listening. Thank you for your time today. Appreciate it, mate. Yeah, and thanks to you all for your voice in the uh, golf atmosphere. It's one of the... Better, more thoughtful voices out there. So keep it up. You're very kind, and perhaps need to broaden your palate a little bit as well. <laughs> as well, Low, good to have you on board. Thank you for organising Kevin today. Thanks, Roddy. Oh, I'm going with that. Yeah. Oh, brutal. Yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> Jimmy, we'll pass the paper. Should we, do we need to start a Patreon for you now that you're a freelancer? Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get, throw Jimmy just, a bunch. Just go fund me. Yeah, well, go like fund me. Yeah. Maybe our only fans. Well. <laughs> I could do that. Good to have you on board as it's well. It's a today. pleasure to be back after yeah. missing the last episode. Yeah, and my well, apologies to Michael McEwen for missing that. I was very unwell. Yes, you were. He, he was really good, but yeah. uh, you did. You missed. Might something. have been award-winning episode. No, if, you were, you if, were on it. If he'd been there and you hadn't, perhaps. <laughs> That's it for episode one fifty-six. We'll be back to do it all again probably next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast. <laughs>